This is Real World Product Management. Hello, everyone. This is Vlad again, and you're listening again to the Real World Product Management. I apologize for missing a ton of time. I know I promised to release more episodes, and I'm releasing less episodes then. Once a week, I was sick. Sorry. Got better. You can still hear me speaking a little bit in the nose, but should be sounding pretty normal right now. So we're back to our regular scheduled programming. And today I decided to narrow down everything and only talk about two things. Number one, what is and what isn't a good product manager? And number two, interviewing and hiring a product manager. Why those two? Well, uh, because I figured uh, it would be a good idea to narrow things down and dive deeper into things. And two, if you define what a good product manager is, it will allow you to interview and hire better. At least that's my understanding of things. And that's way I, the way I'm thinking about this. So what is and what isn't the product, a good product manager? We're not going to cover everything today. Obviously, it's, it would be insane if we could just talk for an hour, define what the hell a good product manager is, and that's it. We're done. There's nothing else to, to talk about. But uh, I am going to talk about a little bit about things that I've, I've seen. I believe I'm somewhere in the middle of the road between a product manager who hasn't done much and the product manager who's done it all. So I'm, I think I'm somewhere in the middle. So... Let's talk about what what does it mean to be a good product manager. Um, one of the things that I consistently see on in the field, let's let's put it this way. Uh, one of the things that I'm consistently seeing in the field is that everybody knows what a product manager does. Um, there are executives, there are project managers, they are there are delivery managers, there are sales executives, salespeople. They all know what the product manager does. Surprisingly, they also think that they can absolutely do a product manager's job. It's just that they're so busy being delivery managers, salespeople, janitors, whatever else. The thing is, it's clearly Danny Kruger effect. For those who are too lazy to dive into the Wikipedia, a Dunning-Kruger effect is a hypothetical cognitive bias stating that people with low ability at a task overestimate their ability. In other words, the less you know about specific field or area or specific tasks, the more you think of yourself as being able to do that task. So if you don't really know what what's included in um, chopping wood, you'd think that, hey, I can do it. It's, you know, dumb physical work. Guess what? If you don't know how to do it properly, you probably either, probably either stretch your muscles, you're, um, damn it, you, you know, chop your fingers off or something, something, something. It takes practice to good, be good at something. So there's a lot of people out there who can think that, hey, I know what product manager does. It's just, it's really simple. They just need to come in, do this, do this, do this, and that's it. We're done. They, we don't need them anymore. <laughs> or, you know, I, I could do it. And that's how you see 
sales executives or um, account managers or project managers or, or some such people coming into the meeting with a client and they're like, okay, so um, from the product perspective, how do we do this? Or from the product perspective, I think we should do this. And, 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 and here's, here's, here's the trick. When they say, as a, from the product perspective, how do we do this? That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad choice of words. The way worse thing <laughs> is when they say, so from a product perspective, this is what we're going to do. And, 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 and the reason why I'm making this distinction is because when they say, from a product perspective, here's the solution, is A, it's the person who's not qualified to be a product manager, B, they jumping straight to the solution and then see they think they know what product management is or how to do a job of a product manager and they like fast forwarding the whole thing they fast forwarding like the whole movie basically right and they come back come straight to the conclusion and then you see resource plans then you see timelines you see project plans like hey uh, we've figured it all out we know what we're doing. We just need two teams for six months. We're good. We're just going to write, we're going to have a product manager write all the user stories up front and we're going to execute. Well, you're in, you're about to enter big, scary world of pain, but that's not my problem. <laughs> it's their problem. So what is and what isn't the good product manager? A good product manager is the one who is uh, a, who's present. <laughs> these conversations and B, a good product manager is the one who doesn't jump into the conclusions and he is aware of his own um, Dunning-Kruger effect that maybe he's the main knowledge is limited. Maybe his or her um, industry knowledge is limited. Maybe her understanding of this particular approach to building a product is limited. And instead of jumping into solutioning or instead of jumping into how we're going to solve this problem. Um, they stick to what is the problem? Can we define the problem to the best of our abilities today? Can we define the path of building this product moving forward? We don't know how we're going to build it. Okay, we, let's, let's all agree on that. The product manager should not be saying how we're going to build it. They can say we're going to use this methodology. They can say we're going to use this approach. We're going to use this, I don't know, ways of working, but they should not tell you how we're going to build a product. That's for solution architecture. That's for engineers. That's for developers, for technical technology folks, for legal, for sales. There will be a way to build it. We're not going to talk about it at the, at the beginning. We're going to talk about what is it that we're building? What is the end result? What are the OKRs? What are the KPIs? How are we going to measure success? All that jazz. In, that, in other words, we want to define the ideal state. We don't want to say oh it's we, we're gonna you know uh use java and we're gonna use uh react js and we're gonna use i don't know uh apache stock on the back end and all is gonna be peachy i don't know <laughs> as a product manager i don't know so a good product manager sticks to defining the what and uh, making making the what so clear that the engineers and solution architects and tech leads and BAs are able to make their own decisions about the how. Uh, they should be able to make their own decisions based on 
the ideal state defined by a product manager. So that's that's kind of where the distinction lies. We as product managers should not be going into the solutioning. That's somebody else's task. We need to define what requires solutioning, which is why we're talking about product manager <laughs> defines the what, and then engineer defines the how. And the business defines why the whole thing exists, right? What's the business reason for certain things? Another um, another trait, okay? So let's understand that there's going to be a ton of stuff that nobody's like strictly good product manager, strictly bad product manager. We're all somewhere in the spectrum. Another thing, another trait that we want to talk about is the obsession with certainty versus embracing the unknown. Let me talk about that a little bit. When you are a product manager, you are intentionally putting yourself in a very uncomfortable position of not knowing basically anything. You don't know the how. You are in a constant state of discovery. You're constantly thinking, what if? You're constantly thinking, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that's gonna be my decision, but I also understand it could be wrong. I want to build two different um, ways. I want to build two different approaches. I want to do A/B testing. I want to interview my uh, potential users or existing users, and I want to understand what's gonna work best for them. And only based on that, I'm gonna go to um, experience designers or graphic designers or. UX or developers or engineers or solution architects, and I'm going to tell them, hey, um, our users want to do this, or our users expect this, to see this, or our users will only be able to use our app or our solution if we provide them with uh, X, Y, and Z features. It's it's constant state of uncertainty. It's a constant state of, I don't know. And the best part of it is, the more you don't know, the more you're willing to experiment, the more you're willing to think it through, the more you're willing to ask questions from the users, from the engineers, from the UX, from the legal, from the sales, from support. And the more questions you ask, the more information you have to make the right decision. This is how you get, this is how you collect data for those data-driven decisions, right? However, the rest of the organization does not like that. The rest of the organization wants to be certain of things. They want to know when they will be able to release, especially first release or major release or something like that. They want to know when are you able to deliver whatever it is you promised to deliver. They want to know how many people you need. They want to know the budget. They want to know the timelines. They want to know the scope of the release. Are you, okay, you're going to release on, I don't know, January 30th, but what's in the release? Are you able to deliver these features? Are you able to deliver these features in in full? Or what's the scope? How much time do you need? How How many people do you need? Which results in how much money do you need? And on and on and on you go. And it results in really funny... It comes out to an absolutely weirdest things or weirdest constructs you could ever see. One of the things, and and I talked about this last time, one of the things is the PRD. 
which is an abomination of the product management world. I, I keep saying it. Uh, someone just recently asked the question on Quora. So how do you use the PRD? I use this template and I'm, I'm not sure if that's the right template. Uh, how do you, what do you, what do you use? How do you use the PRDs? What other teams are doing? And my instant, instant answer was other teams don't use PRDs, period. You don't use PRDs. PRDs are the abomination for one specific reason. It's a compromise, it's a bad compromise at that. It's a compromise between the need for certainty and need to, for clarity from the regular, your off, uh, off the shelf, <laughs> off the shelf, um, your off the shelf enterprise and new ways of working that are, well, they're not so new anymore, but for some enterprise they are. Uh, for some enterprises, they are um, the product management approach, the product mindset approach, this uncertainty and uh, discovery by delivery. What happens is your write PRD is like the same way you used to write functional specification or business requirements document, or and, and, and in many cases, PRD is both. The I think the question um, that I mentioned was, uh, how, do, how do you do, do you define functional and non-functional uh, requirements in your PRD? And it's like, no, you just don't define, you don't write PRD. And that's, that's, that, that solves your problem. You just don't realize that. But not having to write PRD solves your problem. And then um, the person got confused. Somebody else started digging deeper. And they went exactly the same way that I would have went, which is, there's a reason why you write user stories. And there's a reason why user stories have a specific format. The user stories are the bread and butter of software development. And the reason for that is each user story, it's, it's, it has this like minimal consumable, minimum deliverable. It still delivers business value. If you, if you, um, if you go and, uh, and then Google what the, user, what the criteria for a good user story is, it, it delivers business value. Uh, but it delivers them in tiny little chunks. It, it's kind of uh, that age-old question: How do you how do you eat an elephant? You eat it in small chunks. You can't just swallow an elephant in the whole. And PRD is effectively trying to define that elephant, um, not not just just what it looks like, not the, just the size and you know the weight and and the volume of the elephant, but also how he walks. Uh, or how he eats and, and his, his, his behavioral patterns. And after you define all of that and you try to kind of like make that elephant, that the real elephant that we're trying to, to define has a diarrhea and, and that's it. And you're done. And your PRD is no more. It, it doesn't make any sense anymore because now it's a completely different elephant. So what you do is you break down your product into the structure, whichever structure you use. I don't, don't, I, I'm okay with using any structure. In, in our product mindset, we use a product def- divided into capabilities that are defined into features. And then there's features that are defined by epics and user stories. You don't have to do that. You can do epics, features, user stories. You can do themes. You can, whatever works for you. Prop point here is you keep chunking smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces until you get to the point of the user story, which is the minimal business value delivered in a sprint, within a sprint. And the uh, goal here is to have that delivery um, 
done it, 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 if you deliver in these small chunks the, the one of the reasons why initially people um one of the reasons why people initially loved the idea of a sprint and aside from many other things was that if you need to change the direction if something happens in the market with the product you discover something you only lost this small tiny chunk of work you haven't lost the whole project which is the, the predefined project by the predefined documentation which is what the priority ultimately is you only lose this much of work you're saving yourself from you know drama a huge drama huge losses you're minimizing the losses and you continuously deliver and develop and deliver a product you're continuously giving something to the business every sprint business gets some business value so if you think about it this way you don't need to define everything up front. You, what you need to define is the, is the product strategy, the product vision, the product roadmap. The product roadmap is not a sequence of user stories or, or epics and features. It's capabilities and maybe breakdown of capabilities into something smaller. And then you can, you may or may not call it a feature. The trick here is you may think about uh, there's a product, um, then there is a capability underneath the product so let's say i I don't know um a phone a smartphone one of the capabilities is actually making phone calls right another capability is making video which is what i'm doing right now so then you have the video and then you can say oh i want to record video in different formats is that a feature i don't know i don't know but within the capability i have this idea idea space whatever theme um that i want to record videos in different format maybe it's hdr maybe it's 16 by 9 maybe it's 4 by 3 maybe it's 30 fps versus 60 fps whatever the hell that is but when i'm thinking in terms of the roadmap in terms of product strategy that's the level i'm staying at and that's what i need to have once i get to that point i can start working with individual teams i can start working with individual uh, delivery teams solution architecture i can talk to solution architects saying hey this is my roadmap i i intend to have this different um formats of recording the video different form factors 16 by 9 4 by 3 60 fps 30 fps do you think it can be done within a single feature do you think it's all different things uh, from technology perspective, from user, from experience perspective, is that same thing or is that a different thing? How do we approach that? And then, uh, based on conversations with UX, based on conversations with technology, as a product manager, I make a decision to say, "Oh, it's gonna be there's gonna be a feature selecting frames per second, and then there's gonna be another feature selecting." Um, screen ratio 16 by 9 4 by 3 whatever and then based on that i can structure my more detailed roadmap into the actual capabilities features and then break it down by epics and user stories that that's kind of how the process should work however that push for certainty and you'll see this in in a lot of enterprises uh, they they and by they i mean pmo upper management whatever they will tell you so here's what we want to do 
this is what the product should be doing in the future. We want to see all the user stories written up front. It, they don't have to have all the details, but we want to see all the user stories estimated so we would know what the budget should be. Write me all the user stories and estimate them in story points. And um, I'll, I'll, we'll see how long it will take for you guys to build it. And that's what's gonna, that's what our project plan is going to be. And if that's not a <laughs> two barrel shot <laughs> into both feet, I don't know what is. Because you should be writing user stories all the way at the end after discussion with, about uh, product roadmap, product vision, product strategy, coming from the business, coming from the product management office or innovation office or whatnot. Then you have product managers defining the, the roadmap or a feature uh, feature roadmaps or product roadmaps. And then they uh, start working with the teams on dissecting that into smaller uh, into smaller chunks at the, down to the point where they get to the point of, uh, either, again, either features or epics. And then uh, individual teams, either feature teams or which, however your teams are positioned, they take over and they start writing epics and user stories. Well, in my world, it's capability feature epic user stories. So capabilities and features are developed by product managers with social architects, dev, dev leads or teams or whatever. And then from the epics down to the user stories and down to tasks and execution, it's more teams, uh, hey, Agile is, is, is enabling teams to be self-sufficient. That's where you hand it over, not hand it over, it's probably not a good choice of words. The hand over I means I'm, I gave it to you, you own it. They own it, but I'm still here, I'm still participating in discussions, I'm still participating, participating in grooming sessions, but the team is responsible for delivering it. I don't get a say in how they're gonna do it. All I'm saying is I need this, when, when you're done, this is what needs to be happening. This is how the product should behave. How you guys get there, as long as all teams are on the same page, we're using same programming language, same frameworks, same solution architecture, we're good. We're good. I don't need to tell you. And and, and that's why um, writing PRD is probably a sign of a bad product manager. And then not resisting having the PRDs is, well, maybe not bad product manager, but more of a inexperienced product manager or um, not, uh, the product manager is not mature enough, unfortunately, but um, yeah, don't, don't resist, resist writing PRDs. It's, uh, it's bad. It's bad for business. <laughs> but um, I think I already, I already talked about that. Now, We've talked about uh, what's a good and not good product manager. We mentioned the uh, Danny Kruger effect. We talked about what versus how, and we talked about uh, obsession with certainty versus embracing the unknown. Um, unknown is a friend of a product manager. Unknown is good because it allows you to experiment and get the. Let me let me let me see if I can say this right. It allow the unknown allows you to choose the right solution versus choosing the best solution. And the trick here is, um, you know, you, 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 can, you can spend all your budget, you can spend all your time and money and, and, and waste all the resources 
on building the best solution out there. By the time you're going to be done, your product's going to be probably going to be obsolete. But picking the right solution, it may not be the best, but it's the right solution for the moment. It solves the problem. It allows the user to do what they want to do. Ultimately, it keeps the user using your product, and that's what matters. That's why you want to pick the right solution, not the best solution. And the unknown leads you to the right to picking the right solution, not the best solution. So there's that. All right, next big topic um, we wanted to talk, talk about was interviewing and hiring product manager. And uh, this, is, this is the part that I promised to leverage Reddit and I kept reading the Reddit uh, in the uh, last few weeks, especially when I was sick. What else, what else would I do, right? <laughs> Just sit there and, and read. And uh, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of pain going around interviewing in multiple rounds. I agree, I tend to agree with the fact that too many rounds is bad. I don't agree with, if, you know, just one or two rounds is good enough. No. My personal opinion, and it's just my personal opinion, and I, I don't think we're doing this uh, with the company that I'm currently working for. I need to check. But what, what I think is you need to have about four interviews total. One should be HR. They should do a good job pre-screening the candidates and they should do a good job figuring out the fit, the company fit, the culture fit, whatever else. It's their job. If they can't do that job, fire your HR. Or in more realistic terms, don't let them do the whole interview. Let them do 15-minute pre-screening, give them a couple of questions, pretend they're doing it, and then do the actual interview yourself or with the peers or with other departments. But you do need, you do need the uh, culture fit interview, but somebody needs to do it from the, the, the people who are doing it, the person who's doing it, uh, he or she needs to know what what that means, what that culture fit means. If if one of the departments doesn't do that job, then somebody else has to do it. But it has to be done. Now, another two interviews should be the 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 knowledge the knowledge domain interview. So if you're interviewing for a product manager uh, position, it should either be two hours with two different product managers or two different interviews with two different product managers. A reason for that is each product manager has their own, has their own quirks. I have my quirks. I know uh, a bunch of other people that I've been on the interview with who are interviewing the person have their own quirks. Uh, sometimes they're compatible. Sometimes they're not. It's not fair to the candidate that we did not resolve our quirks internally. And the reason why we did not resolve that was because we didn't know, because we didn't have time, because I don't want to give up my quirks because they allow me to make good informed decision about the candidate. So what this means is I don't need to be on the interview with that other person. It's not fair to the candidate. 
and it's fair for the candidate to see at least two, two different people to have at least two different uh, opinions. The more the merrier, but again, I don't think there should be more than four interviews total. So one generic culture fit, two domain uh, role specific, and one with upper management or upper management culture fit or expectations or somebody with a lot more experience, a lot higher position, see how that person would fit the team. And I think that's it. That's that's the most you need to go through. Four is the top. Again, you may be able to combine some of these. You may be able to do away with three. But at least from my opinion, these are necessary steps. If you can't make a decision after these four interviews, you're just wasting everybody's time. You're not hiring. You just, I don't know proving to somebody in HR or in the management team that you're doing everything you can to find the right fit, the exact person that specifically knows the ins and out, well, you're not going to find them. Well, you, by the time you're going to find them, it's going to be two years and your, your competition is going to be way ahead of you. So four steps, one cultural fit, one upper management sort of kind of uh, thing, make them uh, feel better. And then the two different people from your peers, specifically from product management. Here's here's an example. So I, I, I think I brought this up earlier, but um, just in case I'm gonna repeat that again really quickly. Uh, the way I interview people, I try to understand their experience and then move on to case analysis. I know other people hate case analysis and they try to avoid it at all costs, so they drill into the experience. I personally, I'm on the fence uh, with that. I don't think just drilling into the experience is fair to the interviewer. The reason for that is I may not know the specifics of that particular role. So I may not ask, I may not be asking questions that help the candidate open up and tell and tell me more about uh, tell me more about their experience. And on top of that, they may well we will think just just to be clear, we'll think candidates are uh, honest people who are trying to get into the role because they understand what it is they want to work with us and they are good honest people who are looking to fill a specific need the company has. With that said, I've seen my share of people who pretend to have done something they have not. Again, I go into each interview with good faith in the candidate. And I literally, again, I think I've uh, I've made that example before. I've literally seen a project manager resume where the word project management was replaced in the word control R, control F, control R, into the words of product management. So all the responsibilities are for, of project management, all the words on time on bot, you know, running things on time on budget, the scope, but 
he's a product manager. And my grievance here <laughs> is that I don't want to resort to idiotic questions like how many, you know, how many X fit in the in the Y when Z is is alpha. I don't want to talk about you know how many baseballs fit into the bus. I don't want to talk about how many. It, it's it's annoying. It's annoying. It doesn't tell me anything about the candidate. It tells me that either candidate studied these questions and they can pretend really well that they are answering these questions on the spot, or they didn't, and they also just like me, they think it's idiotic. These questions are useless. And they didn't prepare for them. It doesn't tell me anything else about, it doesn't tell me anything at all about their abilities as product manager. All it tells me is either they've studied this idiocy or they haven't. That, that's it. That's all. That's all it tells me. Why would I waste time on that? So instead, I give the candidates use cases. Hey, I want to build a product that does this. How would you approach it? What do you think you will need? What do you think your MVP would look like? How do you approach building an MVP? How do you use your previous experience? And I think that's a legitimate question. I'm not asking them to write up. Actually, that's something that happened to me. I had a um, way, way back, I had an interview with the company, uh, with a startup. They just received their round A or round B, something like that. They uh, create, they, they opened the office, huge office, beautiful view on uh, Hudson River. I think it was Hudson River. Um, so it's amazing, like millions of dollars in rent. One of the prime downtown locations in the financial district in Manhattan. Absolutely gorgeous office, absolutely gorgeous view, a ton of money. These guys are asking me, well, uh, here's here's our product. This is what we think. Why don't you take this home? If you have any questions, ask us. Today's, I don't remember, it was probably Thursday. So let's, by Monday, let's have, uh, let's have a PowerPoint that you're gonna come in uh, back to the office and you're gonna present it. And we want to see you present uh, a roadmap of this product. How do you see it? And, and, and it got me thinking, uh, hey guys, you have a ton of money. It's not, it doesn't look like you're, you know, starting in mom's garage. You're asking candidates to create a roadmap of your product for real, which means you want them to ask you questions, that you want them to uh, call you, discuss things. Effectively, you want them to work for a week on strategy, on road mapping of your product, present the results for free. <laughs> the answer is no. And there's there's a, there's a ton of ton of red flags right there. If you want me to do a consulting gig for a week, that's fine. Let's write up a contract. I'll spend the week. I don't have a problem with that. <clears throat> I'll take time off of, of my other work or whatever, and I'll consult with you. And y you take these results, and then you can either hire me to continue as you would with a consulting company. Guess what? 
com- other companies do this with Deloitte. Other companies do this with McKesson. Other companies do this with uh, whoever else. B- B- uh, BCG. It's normal thing to do. You hire someone for week-to-week, three-week consulting engagement. They write up the strategy. They ask all the right questions. They do everything you just asked me to do. They produce a tangible result, which is actually a PowerPoint deck. You pay them for, for their time, or you pay them for the result. And then you, if you want to use that result, you hire them, and they help you with the execution. If you don't want to use their, their result... You hire somebody else. That's the way it works in a normal, real world. How much do you think a week of my time would cost? Whatever it is, I'm sure you guys have the money. Given the office that you have, given this sheer square footage and the view, you can definitely afford someone like me for a week. It's not going to break your budget. Why do you why why are you why are you doing this? Why are you trying to get this freebie from from people? I'm sure I'm not. I wasn't the only one. I'm sure there's like ton of other people who are doing the same or not doing doing or not doing this for free. So bad way to interview people. Bad way to interview product managers. For interviews, give them an abstract case. My my personal opinion. Give them a abstract an abstract case. I say this five probably at least five times every interview. This is a hypothetical case. You know, I don't expect you to build anything real. Real. I want. I expect you to build realistic. Which means I get it. If I'm asking you to build, um, I don't know, a chat application or messenger or or something like that. I don't expect you to actually come up with, I don't know, user interface or something. But at the very least, I expect you to tell me what your MVP would look like. Well, you know, it's 2020 or 2021 or 2025, whichever the case dictates. And uh, a lot of people are moving away from typing. A lot of people are doing uh, voice messages, but... Not everybody can listen to voice messages. So I would my MVP would have typing, voice messaging, and transcription service. There's a ton of uh, capabilities on Azure, on AWS, on Google Cloud, where you can transcribe the voice. That's it. That's my MVP. Perfect answer. Even if you <laughs> if you didn't include the transcription, I'd be okay with that. As long as you justify as long as you tell me this is how I would approach the MVP. This is what I know. This is what the questions I would ask. This is how I get there. And this is what the impact should be. This is what how I'm going to solve the problem that you gave me in the case. Uh, and again, I'm simplifying. I'm not giving, not giving out the real case here. Just trying to get the point across that why am I giving uh, cases? And even though I do know... Not everybody's on board with uh, cases uh, during the interview because they take a lot of time. And yes, sometimes people get drowned in the case. Yes, sometimes people get scared. I had a kind of candidate who got scared by the case. And they failed the interview because of that. My rationale is, if you're going into a product management role and in the consulting company, in a Technically speaking, we are a consulting company. If you're going to 
into the product manager position at, at the consulting company and you can't deal with the case on the interview, you're a bad fit. Sorry. That's, that's, that's the way I think. And feel free to disagree. I'd be happy to hear your thoughts, YouTube comments, uh, I don't know, Reddit comments, you can find me, whatever. Tell me why you disagree. Because for me, use cases, specifically business cases, or, or just generically calling them cases, on the interview is your freaking bread and butter. You can't get away from that. And um, actually, as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, there's a, there was a ton of, ton of times when I'd be with the client and client would approach me in the informal fashion, in an informal fashion, either over Teams or over Slack or, uh, you know, in the room. Hey, I think this, what do you think about, you know, this, this and this? What do you think about, you know, what the product would be here? Believe me, it's 100% the same case. It's just wrapped in slightly less details and it's a little more convoluted and it assumes you know everything about this particular client and their environment but it's the same case i'm giving you on the interview or it's the same type of a case i'm giving you on the assessment and that's that's exactly the reason why i keep pushing for it i know there are people who disagree with me i i'm okay with that but i'd love to know your reasons please let me know i absolutely hate just going through the resume and leave it at that which is another reason why i'm saying there should be two different product managers with two different approaches to the interview a it entertains the candidate believe it or not uh, people who interview for product management position are really smart people i absolutely love talking to them even to those who fail i still love talking to them they're smart they don't fail because they're stupid they fail because whatever, they fail. They weren't ready, they couldn't solve the problem, they forgot something, they took a specific approach and uh, decided that, you know, sticking to that approach was more important than being flexible, whatever it is. They failed because whatever, there was somebody better. I don't know. It doesn't mean they're stupid. It doesn't mean they're bad candidates. It's just there was various reasons why they didn't pass the battery of all the interviews but they're absolutely smart people and i absolutely love talking to them love hearing those stories those uh things and one of the things that smart people do <laughs> guess what they're smart people right one of the things that smart people do they prepare the stories and i think i said that at least a couple of times on this podcast smart people prepare their stories about each and every job they held, each and every product they built, each and every engagement they were in. So whenever you ask them, they come up with this story. I know because I do the same thing. I know because I've seen people do the same things. I've seen my bosses do that. I've seen my colleagues do that, my peers. I've seen people on the interviews, on the assessments. That's the whole point of being prepared for the interview. You have to have a story behind Anything you say on the interview has to have a story behind it. I did, recently I did a um, pre-assessment, which is kind of like a mock interview. 
a person comes in, you pretend you have this like pretend interview. It's not really an interview uh, because you don't you don't really ask tough questions. You ask questions to assess if the person is ready for the actual interview. Because you can <laughs> you can do a mock interview and then let the person go into the interview and ask all the same questions, right? That's, that would be cheating. So you kind of try to assess how, how ready are they. And um, when we were talking and I was asking questions about around the, the resume and around the jobs and around the engagements, the person sounded very off the cuff. The person sounded like, um, oh yeah, um, here's what happened. Or, and they were trying to come up with the store in a spot and I realized that after conducting hundreds of the interviews and hundreds of the assessments, I can actually tell. I can actually tell when the person is prepared and they have a good story or person is not prepared and they don't have a good story and they're trying to come up with a good story on the spot. Time-wise, it takes them longer to get to the point. And story-wise, it takes them longer to get to the point. And story is not that interesting. Because again, you, story has to be engaging. If you're trying to tell a story uh, during the interview, specifically during the interview, uh, has to be engaging. It has to be engaging story. And and it felt like you know I wouldn't I wouldn't go into the interview. I wouldn't go into the assessment. I wouldn't go uh, with this type of level of preparation. Uh, just because you did something doesn't mean you know how to tell other people what you did and how you did it and and what was it. I, I think it's one of the biggest ones, and, and that's, I think that's why a lot of companies are thinking cases are not fair to candidates, and they substitute cases with eight rounds of interviews with a bunch of other people. It's like don't don't do that. That's I mean, I, I, if you're hiring an executive, I can imagine eight rounds of interviews. You probably want to give them time to talk to all the other executives or you know all the big big shots at your company but a product manager is not that is not that type of a role where you need eight interviews with everybody including the janitor like why what are you trying to accomplish what are you trying to extract if it's free work, if you're if you're trying to ask questions about your your own company's roadmap and your your own company's stuff and have them uh, do free work for you, well, well, we're like I said, pretty much if you if you're if you're going into product management, especially if you have experience, if you're not the fresh graduates that that tr- that are trying to become, you know, a product manager or whatever, um, they can. They can spot that stuff and they can call you out. So don't do that. I mean, I know there's some desperate people who would go for it and they get um, taken advantage of. I I think you have to have some kind of BS meter and don't fall for that. But I totally, I, I've been through some desperate times. Uh, so I completely understand if why, why people would fall for that or why people would still go for it. I don't blame anybody in this in this case. I don't blame um, candidates. I, I I would blame the company, but uh, who does that? But like I said, I understand there are desperate people. There are some companies. This is kind of a good good place to wrap up. 
why companies are doing that. They come. They, I think the answer, and I, 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 I want to give the credit where the credit is due. Uh, I read this as one of the comments on Reddit, and I felt like it's, uh, it's too buried down there, and I wanted to bring it up. Companies don't need visionaries. They need cogs in the machine. And product managers are no different. It's really rare when the company is looking for a visionary. And I don't mean visionary like uh, Steve Jobs, right? We're talking about person who can have a vision about the product. Because that's what the executives are doing, right? That's what sales execs uh, together with the CEO, CEO or that's, that's what they do. They really don't, but okay. Problem with this is everything is is getting commoditized, and that's probably a conversation for another time. But product management is no different; it's getting commoditized. That's why you have all these MBAs or people who, oh, I just graduated from school or from college, I want to go and get an MBA, and then I'm going to go into the product management. And they will, and they will, because companies are indiscriminately hiring everybody who is, you know. Who gets to be? Uh, who gets to have MBA and want to be a product manager? And they did an internship. I uh, built this, you know, um, software, whatever. And maybe that's good. Maybe um, it's it's good that we're gonna have we will have same level of this same levels of seniority. Uh, you have fresh graduates going and writing code, and then you have solution architects who built really truly complex systems you rarely see fresh college graduate getting into solution architecture but getting into coding is not that big of a deal fresh of college so maybe the product management will have similar um will have similar growth and similar distinction that would be beginning or junior product management where you end up doing basic things, small things, small products, small features, uh, writing user stories, getting acquainted with what the product management really is. And then you'll have system architects or business architects or people who understand the full scope of responsibilities and do all those things that are on on the diagram from legal to support to go to market to sales to support to everything else. So maybe that's the way it is but as of right now product management is no longer a visionary job it's a cookie cutter approach to hey we need someone who's going to be doing the road mapping who's going to be doing this who's going to be doing uh, maybe user stories maybe you know uh, breaking down features into epics or epics into features depending on your framework of um, choice and your uh, ways you do things and um that's that's why you get these humongous interviews because if you don't need a visionary which is really easy to spot that that type of a person is really easy to spot if you need just need a cog in the machine you're really trying to get that cog to fit the existing structure you're not really looking for somebody who's going to solve your problems you're really looking for someone who's going to fit into the structure and that's the difference that's why you're going to have all these growing pains and there's a lot of companies that are going digital or after during COVID or after COVID 
uh, they change their ways of working, they're moving fully digital, they need that uh, product mindset, they need that different approach, they've never done it before, they were always putting it in the back burner, now they are trying to get into it, and they just need someone who fit the structure, fit the, fit the bill, fit the, you know, the space where the cog needs to be, so that machine keeps, keeps going forward. And uh, maybe that's a that's, that's a different topic for that's a topic for another day. That's a different discussion altogether. But um, that's why you get that interviewing of um, massive, massive hiring, massive interviews of product managers. But you interview them like you would any other lower level, <clears throat> lower lower level worker. Again, not because I want to. Um, talk somebody down or uh, disrespect someone just because and understand we're talking about cogs in the machine just another brick in the wall sort of thing so that that was it uh, we talked about what's a good product manager versus what's a bad product manager talked about the everybody's an expert in Dunning-Kruger effect <laughs> talked about what versus how obsession versus with certainty versus embracing the unknown then we talked about the interviews uh, multiple rounds of the interviews dive a little dived a little deeper into cases why I prefer cases versus not being ready for the interview uh, doing free work for companies as a part of the assessment or as a part of the initial interview and we ended up on the a little bit sad note but it's a you know real world product management so uh, the real deal is, Companies don't need visionaries, they need cogs in the machine. With that, thank you very much, appreciate it. Let me know what you think, comments, emails, anything works. Um, You've been listening to The Real World Product Management and I've been your host, Vlad Grubman. Until the next time.